This is a previously recorded episode. You're listening to the Innovates podcast featuring speaker and innovation expert, Michael Mode. We bring you innovation on the eights with new episodes posted every day that ends in eight, the 8th, 18th, and 28th of the month. The Innovates podcast is part of the Podcast Detroit Network. For more information about Michael Mode and his corporate speaking and consulting services, please visit Innovates.com. That's I-N-N-O-V-E-I-G-H-T-S.com or BigLightBulb.com. And now, get ready for another creative conversation with your host, Michael Mode. Welcome to another episode of Innovates. I'm your host, Michael Mode, and my guest today is a very interesting person, Adam Rubin, who is a New York Times bestselling children's book author. His uh, book, Dragons Love Tacos, is coming up on two years on the uh, New York Times bestselling list. And uh, his recent book, RoboSauce, debuted on that list as well. He's uh, a funny guy, an interesting guy, and uh, he's also a magician. We're going to talk about that. Please welcome to the show, Adam Rubin. How are you doing, Adam? Hey, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good. Thanks for thanks stopping for by. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for talking with us. First of all, congratulations on all your success. I'm so happy for you. Uh, thanks, Ben. I was in Costco the other day, and uh, I'm walking down the aisle, the main track around Costco, and I see uh, you know, the books on the end cap there, and I see your book, RoboSauce, right next to where the wild things are, and uh, I just got a big smile on my face. I said, there's my friend Adam's book, and uh, it's awesome. Uh, well, now I've got a big smile, too. <laughs> and, and the book, it has a warning label on the front. I've got the copy here, uh, my signed copy. It's got a warning label on the front. It says, this book turns into a robot, which is great. And, and talk a little bit about that, because this book has a surprise ending to it. Yeah, spoiler alert, the book turns into a robot. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's a story about a kid. It's a picture book, I should clarify. It's a picture book for children, like the like mm-hmm. where the wild things are. But and the pictures good. are done by Daniel uh, Salmeri, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Daniel Salmeri has done, we've done seven books together. This is our seventh book together, and the pictures are great. There's some really cool design. He's a wonderful illustrator, and it's... Uh, it's great to be able to work with somebody so talented that's also a really good friend of mine. So that's, that's been one of the luckiest things about this whole picture book adventure is working with Dan. It's been so much fun traveling around doing the book tours and everything. It's been, it's been a blast. Yeah. But uh, RoboSauce is about a kid who likes robots, and the narrator of the book teaches the kid how to make a magic potion that, that turns him into a robot. Right, what you describe as a blend of technology and magic. That's the yeah, the recipe. Which is the line I actually stole from Deltron 3030. <laughs> okay. Most kids probably don't pick up on that. But uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a story. It's sort of a traditional story of the kid wants something, wish fulfillment, and then he gets it. It doesn't quite turn out how he wants. And when you, just when you think things are going to, play out as expected and he's going to learn his lesson and go back to being a kid he kind of story sort of takes a turn the robots take, sort of derail the narrative and 
take over the story, they turn everything to robots, they turn the narrator into a robot, and then at the uh, very end, the whole book actually folds out and turns into a robot book. Yeah, it's very cool. I mean, the cover, there's a, uh, well, another spoiler alert, but there's a second cover inside that unfolds around the first cover, and then the book finishes where everyone's robots. And I've never seen a book like this. Yeah, I don't know if there's any other book uh, out there that turns into a robot, but it was sort of inspired by a book called Round Trip, which I think was published in the 70s. -hmm. And it's this black and white, very simple graphic story about it's a, it's a little it's a little bit uh, it's a little uh, abstract, but it's basically about going to a bunch of different places in the city and driving driving on the highway and then coming back in the country and and all this sort of road trip type of story. But what's interesting about it is that once the story is finished, you turn the book upside down and you read it again upside down. Okay, and all of the the 2D black and white imagery is now changed. You're looking at the inverse images. And so the type that was upside down in black is now on the bottom in white and vice versa. So you can just kind of read it over and over again and oh, very cool. back and forth all the way through the book. Was that a book that you read growing up? Or No, it wasn't a book I read growing up. There was something... I mean, I always... Especially since I've been working on picture books, I try to keep my eyes out for anything that's novel or unusual because one of the fun things about picture books is just the idea that they are these physical artifacts, which is not necessarily a quality you find in a novel uh, necessarily, but there's a kinesthetic quality to a picture book, turning the pages and taking it up off the shelf and making the piles. In a kid's life, the object of the picture book is is prevalent, especially in America. Not so much everywhere in the world, but a lot of American kids, they have a little shelf full of books, and they have their favorite books. Some people even save the books from their childhood, and the pages kind of get dog-eared, and they you know, go through them a bunch of times. And so there is a tactile element to a picture book reading that you don't necessarily get when you read on a Kindle or on an iPhone screen or something like that. So I, I completely anytime somebody agree with takes that, advantage yeah. of that, I try to keep my eyes out for good examples. I completely agree with that. I don't, I don't think children's books will ever go away because there is that tactile experience that you get from reading the book and actually holding it in your hands. And then when you've got a book like this, it's got the, the cover that, that folds around it. You know, you're not going to do that with your Kindle. You're not going to – or your uh, – Yeah, it was a little tricky to translate into the, into the e-book, but that's okay. I'm not, <laughs> not the biggest fan of e-books. I really only read the – I really only use the Kindle for books over 500 pages. If they're if they're pain in the butt to put in your carry-on luggage or take it on the train, then I'll 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 use the Kindle. But I find I don't recall the information as well when I read on the Kindle. And that there's something about knowing where on the page, how deep in the book, which side of the book the information was on. Maybe it's just that added information, but it kind of helps me peg the information and retain it a little better. I mean, that's I'm sure that's just me, but no, uh, I'm I'm the same Kindle exact way. Really I, yeah, I feel the same way. Now, your uh, your first New York Times bestseller, Dragons Love Tacos, is coming up on uh, two years on the New York Times bestselling list, which is amazing. And and you yeah, told me that you're on there the whole time. It, it came out a few years ago. I think it came out in 2012. 
but it's been up and it's been off and on the list, and, and people really like it. It's sort of taken on a life of its own. We're almost I think in two weeks. If if things keep going well, then we'll have been on for a hundred weeks. Wow, not continuous, but yeah, pretty amazing. That that is amazing. And you told me you're an accidentally a, a best-selling author. Did you ever plan to write children's books? No, I I, uh, I always liked children's books. Um, I always liked the graphic quality of, of the books, the, the kind of word-image relationship. That was always something I, I enjoyed. I, I was an art student in college, and I wound up in advertising as a creative director, so that was something that always appealed to me. But I never really imagined that that would be my career path. Yeah, and now when you were working in Chicago, you were working for, was it Leo Burnett? And you were you were doing what? You were doing something with Mc, uh, with McDonald's, right? Yeah, I started my career right after college. Uh, I mean, not right, right after college. But I moved to Chicago, and I was knocking on a lot of doors with my portfolio from art school, trying to get a trying to get a gig as a copywriter at one of the agencies there. And I happened to land a job at Leo Burnett. So my first four or five years in the industry were writing Happy Meal commercials, predominantly a lot of sports-related commercials for TV for the Chicago area. I met a lot of White Sox and Cubs players and Bulls players and wrote a lot of sort of inside baseball uh, commercials that would run in the Chicago and Northwest Indiana area and then run a national um, Happy Meal commercials that would promote whatever premium toy was, was being offered at the time. Right. Also worked on like... Uh, Procter and Gamble and Kellogg's and wrote some funny Tampax commercials for radio and stuff <laughs> like that. Glad that wasn't an illustrated book. Mm, yeah. No. <laughs> now you were uh, you started writing books years ago, but you still uh, worked in the uh, creative uh, agencies and you. But you quit last year to to become a full time author. Yeah. How did you get started writing children's books? Well, when I was in college. I didn't really know what I was going to study. I went to Wash U in St. Louis because they sent me a postcard in the mail and it seemed really pretty. And I went to visit and wound up spending my pre-frosh weekend sleeping on the floor of some girls' rooms in a sophomore suite. So I thought, this is a place i got to spend the next four years. And I was really glad I did. I met a lot of people that I never would have been exposed to if I had stayed in New York. I grew up on the East Coast. And I didn't really know what I was going to study. I thought maybe business or or writing, or Spanish, or or something to do with marketing, maybe. I never was an art student in high school, but after taking a lot of classes and poking around, it seemed like the visual communications program was the best bet for me at Wash U. So I wound up transferring my second, sort of halfway through my freshman year into the art school and taking all these art classes, and I was just completely out of my element. But as, as I progressed towards the senior studio portion of the program, since I was writing, I was also a writing major, and I was uh, more of a word guy than, a, than an art guy. I kind of became the de facto copywriter for all the other uh, advertising design students in the program. So people needed a headline or they needed help with their concept. They might come to me and if I needed help with a design or a second opinion on the aesthetic quality of some project, I might be able to get some favors returned in that way. But I wound up collaborating with a lot of different people throughout the throughout the um, the last two years. One of the guys that I knew and became really good friends with was a guy named Corey, and he grew up 
in New York, and he had always studied art. In fact, he went to LaGuardia High School in Manhattan, which is a, a sort of prestigious magnet school in New York public system for, for kids to study art. And one of the guys he went to, to high school with studied to be an illustrator in college. When I graduated from college and was working at Leo Burnett, this guy, Corey, introduced me via email to Dan Salmeri. And if it wasn't for Corey and it wasn't for Dan and us meeting over the internet that way, I wouldn't probably be talking to you now, and I, I certainly wouldn't be writing picture books for a living. That's amazing how that uh, that connection just changed your life for the better. Yeah, I mean, it really was an unexpected turn. It really was something that when I met Daniel and he showed me his artwork, and I hadn't even met him actually. It was just when we met via email and he showed me his portfolio, we, we kind of exchanged work. I had done some video sketches and some TV commercials, and he had all these beautiful illustrations. I thought, got to work with this guy. And that was really the only reason I wrote a picture book. I wrote a children's story because I wanted him to illustrate it. So it was always something I did on the side. I had my advertising career and I would write stories at night. And the first couple stories were really well received. So it just kind of kept going. And eventually it, it became a bigger opportunity than even my, my advertising career and book had become. And you've got seven books now, right? Yeah. Uh, Dragons Love Tacos, The Big Bad Bubble, which is an interesting uh, topic. That's about uh, children facing their unreasonable fears, right? Yeah, that may be the only book that has a really strong message or uh, any sort of didactic quality. I I thought, I thought that was a good... People would sometimes say, oh, their books are fun, but there's no substance, which is, I guess, fine. <laughs> but, right. But uh, I thought that the the whole idea, if I was going to put forward an idea or some sort of life philosophy, then the one that really appealed to me is something my friend Mick Napier always espoused in, in Chicago. He was, he's uh, an improv and comedy director for Second City in the Annoyance Theater, where I spent a lot of time. Yeah, you're big in improv, in aren't you? Yeah. And he, his whole philosophy is... And you can't really put that in a picture book, but I tried to translate it as best I could into an allegory about some big, scary monsters who are afraid of soap bubbles. I, I think it's a great book. And all the illustrations just complement the stories, but they're fun and they're funny books. You know, these are children's books, but I love reading them. Well, that's good to hear. I, <laughs> people sometimes ask me how I know what, what kids are going to like. Yeah. And the truth is, I don't have kids. I don't really spend a whole lot of time around kids, but... I just write what I think is funny, what I think is interesting, and it turns out that my sensibilities are pretty similar to a child. Yeah. Now, you've met a, you, you go into schools now and speak to the kids about your books, right? Yeah, the last year, I quit my, my day job. I was a creative director at an ad agency in New York for a few years, and I, I quit almost a year ago, which gave me the time to go and visit a lot more schools to do these promotional events or author visits all around the country, and so... I've definitely met a lot more of the readers in the last 10 months than I ever have before. And you must be a celebrity to these kids. I mean, not exactly. I think they know the, they know the, the books, uh, but they don't know who I am. So it's, a nice, it's kind of the perfect amount of notoriety. If they know who, who I am, if, they're, if, they're, if it's explicitly told to them, they may be excited to meet me, but nobody's, nobody's 
running me down on the street or recognizing me at the grocery store right. or anything <laughs> like that. Well, it's kind of the best of both worlds. You get to uh, have some anonymity, but then you get to have a little bit of celebrity when you visit the schools or do a book signing or anything like that. Yeah, I think that that's something that most most authors enjoy is that they're even if their books are really, really famous, which I mean, would you recognize John Grisham walking down the street? No, probably not. Right. No. So that's kind of a nice thing. Yeah, that is that is one of the perks of the job. Now, your first books were those darn squirrels, and then you uh, later on you came out with Dragons Love Tacos, which that's your bestseller to date, isn't it? Yeah, and it's dragons and love and tacos, and, and as you say, the only things that that dragons love more than tacos and parties is uh, oh no, that's the the secret pizza party. Dragons love well, how did you say it? Dragons love tacos and uh, parties, but they love taco parties the best. Yeah, well, I mean, if you like tacos and you like parties, then a taco party is a winning combination. Yeah, <laughs> you said it better than I do. There you go. Now, uh, what are your inspirations for these stories? When you think about squirrels and dragons and tacos, how do you come up with the ideas for these? Yeah, I get asked that a lot. I don't have a good answer. I think there's a, there's a good answer for a couple of them. The first one is that those are squirrels are based on my dad. He loves birds and he loves watching the birds. And so when I was a kid, I used to put all these bird feeders all over the backyard. We grew up in Rockland County, which is in the Hudson Valley in New York, mm-hmm. and it's, it's heavily wooded. And where there's lots of birds, there's also lots of squirrels. So he would wrestle with huge battle with these squirrels over the bird feeders for my entire childhood. And no matter what he did, the, the squirrels would figure out a way to get into the bird suit and eat all the bird suit, and it would drive him nuts. So that was definitely the inspiration for those darn squirrels as far as dragons love tacos the best the best i can say is there was a little statue that was in my house growing up that always looked to me like a dragon eating a taco and so it kind of just spun out from there (laughs) um but some of the other ones i don't really have a good i don't really have a good explanation for how they came to be well, you're a very uh, creative person, and we got to know each other, geez, it's going back 15 years ago when I was working for David Copperfield in New York, and I was uh, kind of managing a project there that we were doing in Times Square, and we would have other people come in, and you were helping us out. And the other day when I was talking to you, I said, you know, you were – some days you couldn't help us or you were late. And I said, what job were you doing? And you said, um, I, I was in high school. I didn't realize you were that young back then because you've always carried yourself well and you've always been, you know, way ahead of your calendar years. But you're huh. you're also big into magic. You're you're a very very good magician. How much has magic influenced the book writing? Uh, not a ton, not a ton. I I don't know that there was really. I think that. The, the magic was separate from the book writing for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that the first six books really were influenced by my my thought process or my experience from the magic perspective. But RoboSauce was absolutely wouldn't wouldn't exist if it weren't for the many years and many books I <laughs> I poured through uh, because of my interest in magic because. RoboSoft does a magic trick, basically. Right. And you've dedicated and, the book to Mark Sedicati, 
who's your mentor, and uh, he, he was a guest on this show, actually, on Innovates, who's a, a brilliant toy inventor and puzzle inventor and a magician. And uh, so it, it, it is a magic trick that you would say that this book... Absolutely. Yeah. It's 100% a magic trick, and it's, it, it was very much inspired by the magic show, which is Mark's book, that I remember reading... Oh, I don't know. Back in two thousand one, I might be getting that that date wrong, but it's one of my favorite books. Somewhere in the early two thousand, and it just blew my mind. Did, I mean, yeah. I remember going through the book, and there were there were three or four things in that book that genuinely dumbfounded me. And I, I remember yeah. my internal struggle of: Do I go back? Do I turn the page back and try to dissect <laughs> this thing, or do I make it all the way through? And I was so glad that I made it all the way through without peeking because. The last trick in that book. And the Houdini trick, right? The, the Houdini and the water torture cell at the end? Is yeah, that, and I mean, that's yeah. Angelo Carbone came up with that, who's another good friend of mine, but I didn't know Angelo at the time, and I was just so badly fooled that I just sat staring at the book. For, I know what he was there. That, that's a, I, read the, I did the same thing. I was on my couch, and I had the book, and I went through it, and I thought, okay, this... You know, it looks like a, a children's book almost. It looks like a – and I'm reading through it and then it fooled me and then it fooled me again and then it fooled me again. And I got to that last illusion and my mind was just blown and I thought this book is wonderful. And I've given yeah, out several yeah. copies of that book and I've got several copies. It's it's really brilliant. There's so many – it works on a lot of levels too. There's a lot of little details that, that Mark has pointed out to me over the years that I never really noticed. Specifically, maybe you get the feeling of them, but if you look at the book carefully, you'll notice that each page it's sort of a tour through this this house. And if you look carefully at the book, you'll see that there's little doorways or little turning the corner that you can see the. It's almost foreshadowing from the next page to the to the from the last page or to the next page. You can see that it's this three dimensional environment they've created with the design of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll have to go it's back. It's really great. Cool great, great book. I, I really inspired me and really, I think I wouldn't have such a strong interest in puzzles and these impossible objects if it weren't for that book. Yeah, you're a big, I'm a big puzzle guy as well and you love impossible objects. I've got a, a big collection of those. When you look at a book like this, do you think of the ending? Do you think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this cover and then I'm going to write the story around that? Do you look at it as like no. a magic trick where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take something and, and this is the end result that I want to achieve? No, I didn't. I, I actually didn't intend for it to do a magic trick, but in the original draft of the story, the boy kind of does learn his lesson, and the surprise ending is that the dog licks up some of the robo-sauce and turns into a robot. You know, that was kind of a surprise ending, and my, my editor thought that it was too expected. So in the meeting, I kind of spitballed some ideas about... I, I maybe got a little carried away in suggesting that, well, the dog turns into a robot, but then the parents turn into a robot, and then the house turns into a robot, and the friends and the school turns into a robot, the whole town turns into a robot, and then he turns the narrator into a robot, and then a book turns into a robot. And I <laughs> yeah. wish I had a better story about how I developed the prototypes and the ideas and worked through a million different methods, but as I said it to my editor, I saw it right away how it was going to work, like sort of this Playboy centerfold plus a Himber wallet, plus a 
that round trip. And a, and a Himber wallet is a magic trick. For the, yeah, for the people listening, Himber wallet's a magic trick, you know, a special wallet that opens up a certain way. So you're combining all of these different things, these puzzles, these magic tricks, the Playboys that you read into, you know, it all. everything that you've done comes together. The improv comedy is part of it because the books are very funny. The improv and the magic to me are, people ask, have asked me in the past because I've taught improv and I've, I've worked a lot in the magic world. Is there a good way to combine them? And to me, they're, they're in a lot of ways, they're diametrically opposed because improv is all about coming up with something on the spur of the moment and really not knowing where it's going to go. And magic is very much about building towards a, a foregone conclusion in a way that's surprising and satisfying, but ultimately you need this amazing thing to happen. And, and you very much do need to know what that's going to be. And I've heard people say jazz magic and with ambitious card or other sort of tricks that, that, there is an improvisational element involved, and I'll I'll, I'll buy that. But I, I really I think that it, they are very very different, and that there is a prescribed uh, a prescribed ending to a magic trick, which is that it's got to be amazing. And with improv, it's the complete opposite, where you really don't know where it's going to go. But those thought processes that, uh, while they may not combine very well to create magic that is truly improvisational, or, or vice versa. The thought processes complement each other beautifully because in improv anything goes, and you really you follow the idea and you kind of go with what your imagination comes up with. And with magic, it very much is about figuring out practically how you can accomplish this thing that seems impossible. And with RoboSoft, I think it was a, it was a good example of both, where the creative process was all about the story. How is it funny? How is it interesting? How can we make it surprising and fun? And then the practical element of how do we make the book turn into a robot was very much based in magic methodology and those sorts of, of processes, not just in this is physically how the book's going to fold out and transform, but also how do you instruct the viewer to do this themselves while you're not there? Yeah, it, and you make it very clear, and then the whole story of it and, and the design and the look, how it's silver and it you know looks robotic, and there's that that improv sense of humor to it, but also there is that magic quality where you're surprised and, and it, uh, it did, you, you brought all those elements together very well. Well, I'm really proud of Dan and I'm really proud of it. And it's been really exciting and satisfying to see people respond to it. It's been uh, a really uh, great project. Well, it's a, yeah. We Go. did recently get uh a disappointed review on Amazon from somebody that gave us one star because, and maybe I should clarify for the viewers that the book does not actually turn into a functioning uh, robot. It, there's no electronics. Um, it doesn't get up and walk around or blink or boop. And you somebody thought that somebody thought that so, it did. Yeah, yeah, we had a we had a pretty disappointed reader <laughs> that thought it was pretty flagrant false advertising. <laughs> well, you're always going to have that person on there. It's a good thing you're not on Yelp, right? Because they would say that the robot sauce tasted bad. Well, my friends know I have this sort of sadistic streak where I, I much more enjoy reading the bad reviews than the good reviews. Oh, they're sometimes more entertaining, definitely. You rarely hear them to your face, though. And, and you, on your website, you even have a link to some of the bad reviews, don't you? <laughs> and and that's what I love it's, about it's you. you have that sense of humor. And your website is whothehell.com, right? Whothehell.com is your website. And then you have a, a, and then a children's version which is what? 
Which is uh, the the children's version of Adam Rubin has a website dot com. Okay, and that one doesn't have any bad words or anything on it. That's a H E double hockey sticks doesn't fly in some of the public schools. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm very proud of you, my friend. Uh, it's it's great to see you uh, succeed, and I know you're just starting out, but you know to see your book at Costco and to see you doing so well on Amazon and all the bookstores. And, you know, just randomly, I, I'm on Facebook and a friend of mine posted your book, Secret Pizza Party, and she said, this is my daughter's favorite book. And ironically, it was uh, the daughter of uh, the guy that my friend Mike Foydell, his daughter Tracy, she's now married, has a, a daughter, Micah, and uh, it's her favorite book. And, and, she, and I said, do you know that that's my friend and he's a magician? She said, oh, my God, I had no idea. And it's just so cool to see you being recognized by people and just these random, really random cool. appearances. I, mean, I, I still not quite used to it. And when I walk into a bookstore, it's just I get this really enormous buzz of pride and satisfaction. Every time I see the book on the shelf, it's, uh, it's really a cool feeling. Well, you're a nice guy, and you deserve all the success, and I know you're just getting started, and uh, from what you've told me, you've got a lot more ideas and a lot more things to come, so uh, it's going to be a fun ride. I can't wait to see what you do next. Oh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, great. Well, thanks a lot, Adam, and uh, thanks for listening to another episode of Innovates. Till next time, stay curious. Thanks for listening to the Innovates podcast featuring speaker and innovation expert Michael Mode. Make sure to check back on the 8th. We will post new episodes of Innovates on the 8th, 18th, and 28th of the month. The Innovates podcast is part of the Podcast Detroit Network. For more information about Michael Mode and his corporate speaking and consulting services, please visit Innovates.com. That's I-N-N-O-V-E-I-G-H-T-S.com or BigLightBulb.com. This is a previously recorded episode